You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Christine Hume here uh, with her daughter, Juna, who we just heard doing uh, our opening, our intro track. <laughs> Christine, Juna, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. So how did this How did this uh, first um, sound piece that we heard come to be? Oh, well, it's, I like to record uh, Juna, and uh, I don't do it nearly as much as I should, but... Um, uh, Which would be all the time, well, exactly. right? Because I you? Was like that was brilliant. Like, why don't I have it running now? But uh, <laughs> so one time, it's it, the first, very first little song that she was singing, um, actually comes from an experience um, of recording um, my. Uh, work and Kathleen Ivanhoff's collaboration, an uh, essay we collaboratively wrote on Red, and uh, Christine McCall, who is a musician and just a you know fabulous uh, composer. She has this um, Ann Arbor rock choir, and so they got together and decided to record some of it. And I took Juna to a little bit of that recording, and so what you just heard was her singing just her kind of like remix of a, <laughs> a little bit of what they were doing because it was completely mesmerizing, you know, for her to be in this small room surrounded by people like singing. Uh, <laughs> and she can really carry a tune. Oh, yeah. She's a, she's a great musician for sure. <laughs> oh, well, and we'll also be hearing actually um, some of your 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 sound pieces, your poems and and collaborations, That's Christine, right. a little bit later, yeah, right, 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 in the program. And, right. And the and the uh, piece that 
uh, I was just talking about actually uh, is on Tech Sound, which uh, was Anna Vitale's um, final Michigan issue. Yes, Anna from WCBN's exactly. own Anna <laughs> <laughs> and Laura Weatherington. Exactly. And, yeah. So yeah, it, it's all very homey <laughs> here in Michigan. Yes, uh, but that. So I thought that was an interesting like re reversion of uh, cross-platform, you know. <laughs> yes, brilliant. And, and you know, before we go any further, I should actually, could I see Shot? Um, oh, sure. Your book um, <laughs> with uh, Counterpoint Press, 2009. Um, because what I was going to do, Christine, like are the usual, the way that the... The, the rhythm of this is that I read the, the latest book bio. So now I'm ferreting through for it. And then we'll kind of fill in the, the pieces a little bit, if oh, you don't sure. mind, you uh, for your, your, uh, you know, the, the biography part of the show. Christine Hume is the author of Musca Domestica and Alaska Frenia, as well as a chapbook with CD entitled Lullaby, Speculations on the First Active Sense. She teaches in and directs the interdisciplinary creative writing program at Eastern Michigan University, where she hosts Poetry Radio, another a double woohoo there, a radio show podcast available through iTunes U. She lives in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with her partner, Jeff Clark, and their daughter, Juna. So thanks oh, for letting me borrow bet. shot there. <laughs> and then we also have Musca Domestica. I hope I'm pronouncing, am I pronouncing yeah, that right. correctly? I said Musca Domestica. Um, okay, Musca. It's the, a Latin binomial for housefly. Um, so. Which is great. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and because it seems like music right, exactly. as well as domestic. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's but, totally, uh, I mean, I, I, I like this, uh, the defining impulse of the title but also that it has these other kind of echoes and refractions too which you address in the first poem really right exactly right? Well, all like these different the plane with the word fly mm -hmm. and the like even catching a ball right, right or right. a type of ball <laughs> fly ball right <laughs> <laughs> the, the book is full of fly balls <laughs> but uh, i mean it's yeah it's funny to be talking about that it feels well, so from, this is from beacon press 2000 yeah right, right. and this was the um barnard women's prize mm -hmm. winner that's right. Yeah. So the and the first piece uh, tries to kind of undermine the title's defining impulse. Um, so that that was the kind of idea to kind of have a a structure of um, you know binaries in place from the beginning. So and it uses the fly as a kind of trope um, throughout in various ways, but never like so. Um, you know, it, the fly never becomes like a character, like say, like Ted Crow, uh, Ted uh, Hughes's crow, or you know. So, but I, but I was thinking a lot about this lyric tradition of um, using uh, <laughs> using um, birds, and so the the fly. I like to think of the fly as a kind of like dark counterpoint of the bird, the lyric bird. So like Hopkins, Winhover, and Keats's Nightingale, and. Uh, Etc. You know, you can go on. <clears throat> yes, the, the poets and their birds. But right. I love this this look at the 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 like the little fly, like something perhaps so ordinary, right? right. But but so with us. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think well, it also seems so poetic too, because you know, as anybody who's been trapped in a room with a fly knows, it always seems to be coming toward you and away from you at the same time. So it has this kind of poetic indirection, you know, uh, mastery of this yeah, that's <laughs> kind <brilliant>. of form. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that before, but that's exactly true. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, I, I, as you can probably tell, I like these sort of 
projects for books, you know, where I'm focusing on loosely some idea or um, concept, you know, that holds the the work together. And so that this book, um, since it's my first book, it took me like a, a really long time to sort of form, you know, and uh, some of it was a little bit retrofitted into, but it seemed like, oh, you know, it's like, it's like things start making sense when you have a kind of uh, magnetic core, you know, mm-hmm. and everything kind of reorients itself around that. Yeah, you almost see it differently. Right, a exactly. Little bit, or you see the connections within it that weren't first right. apparent or right. so. Or even intended, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's because sometimes those kind of surprises are much better than the things you, you know, immediately, you know, would associate with flies, say. Uh or like my second book is Alaska Frania, so that Alaska becomes the the field of uh, you know energy that everything uh, is is running through and you know uh, reorienting itself around. So and I love how you said for that that book you had an Alaskan ear. Oh, of sorts. So I read <laughs> that <laughs> online. Yeah, and I, I love the sound of that. I think you used the word avalanche, like like maybe like the surround. I don't know. It was. It just seemed. Um, like oh, an Alaskan ear. It just made a, some a, a certain type of sense. Uh-huh. Um, and and you say uh, in um, in what the biography that's on your Eastern Michigan University site, uh-huh. Christine, that you've been in sixteen states and countries. So oh, right. was Alaska important to you, or was it more the Alaska of the imagination, or what? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely um, you know it's this kind of like um, mythic place in our national consciousness. And um, I was mining that, um, but also this sense of um, like a, a kind of mythical birthplace in some ways that um, that I could project into and and try to find bits of everywhere I went. So during the time I was writing the book, I. You know, I also moved a lot, um, and I had, like, residencies here and there. And, you know, so there was a lot of um, transplanting. And so I would find, like, little pieces of Alaska wherever I went, you know, and I felt like I was just trying to um, create something that was uh, built around those desperate pieces, you know, as I'm moving around, you know, uh, and trying to find an identity. Um, so I, I wanted this world of Alaska to be like a mental Alaska, but also um, one that was was not necessarily entirely personal. So it has a kind oh. of public consciousness as well. Oh, okay. Because I thought you were going to say like a stabilizing force of some sort, but something that's not entirely personal, but like right. a, more, a public, well, it's, it's, something that we all can have. Right. Like because the, it's, you know, it's like this this place you project into, you know, Alaska. You know, There's always a sense like, oh, I can always move to Alaska and buy a town. And, you know, <laughs> no matter what happens here. Go like, fishing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Disappear. That's true. <laughs> and like go back to some kind of, you know, there's this this romantic fantasy of going back to like a more elemental life. And yeah, exactly. And so I think um, just in terms of like manifest destiny and the sense that Americans usually have of being able to like recreate oneself and one's psyche even. uh, And also this, um, you know, witness protection plan mystique about it. Uh, So... (laughs) (laughs) 
And, and, All those things I think I, I personally find fascinating, but I don't think I'm alone in that, you know. And and so had you been there, Christine, then? Or, or where were well, you born? Because I actually, I don't know where you, where were you born? Where are you from? I actually, um, I've been saying for a long time that I was born in Alaska, but it's not actually true. I was born in Pennsylvania. So uh, <laughs> oh, then, it just became this kind of um, way of inhabiting the place. And my brother was born in Alaska, so it's not like too far removed uh, <laughs> and were you and then did were you like a, a year or so in your family moved to alaska is that what happened like oh, you were born well, my, in pennsylvania my, yeah my my so my brother's older and um he was born in alaska and my father um when my mother was there and pregnant with me um my father went to the vietnam war and my my mother found herself like, why am I living by myself in Alaska with you know a kid? It's a very isolated place in in the sixties. Uh, um, not a lot of women around either. So, <laughs> so she decided to move um, back to uh, Pennsylvania, where she's from. So, just to be close to family and wait for my father to return. Oh, and, uh, and then and then, then you I was did. born there. Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. Um, and and then and then you and then did you did you all then relocate back to Alaska? Then, oh or? no! And then we, my father was in the military, so we oh. moved every couple of years, and that's why that's why I lived in sixteen places. <laughs> yeah. And do you find like is that some part of you that's because that's what you your formative sort of all those like those years? Um, is it something in you that wants to keep moving in some way or? Well, it definitely has been uh, the case until I came here. I think um, I've lived in Michigan 10 years and that's by far the longest I've ever lived anywhere. And it's kind of exciting. You know, it's like a, a thrill uh, to be able to say that because before that, I, the longest I'd ever lived anywhere was four years. And now I've been in the same house for five years, which is kind of like unfathomable because even when I was in a certain location, I'd often like, you know, move to a different part of the um you know, city, or I would take, you know, an extended, like in college, I did a study abroad for a year, you know, so there was always interruptions. Exactly. Or, uh, going someplace else for a couple months and then coming back. Um, and it definitely became a kind of metabolic pattern for me. Um, and, but now I have a very sweet domestic life and I can't really imagine moving. Although every winter I think like, why do I live here? <laughs> Especially this week. Well, you've got a great hat. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah, this is my grandmother's actually. <laughs> I always say like I'm the vegetarian with the most amount of fur. Like I have <laughs> a ton of fur and it's nice to have in Michigan, but it also feels like I didn't buy this. You know? <laughs> or, and I didn't kill it. Too. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let's take a short break and then we'll come back okay. and we'll we'll talk more with Christine Hume. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Is 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 Rhythm is an intelligence activated by being.
saturated and insistent. Each organ enwraps or ruptures the rhythm. More than you know what to do with. What a rhythm will become to stay in the world. Ecstatic rages digging themselves into the room, into your voice, haunting air and innards. Listen toward the fantasy of total comfort and you hallucinate. branch ticking at the window. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzella, and today Christine Hume is here. Um, thanks for being on the program, Oh, Christine. it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's great. This is the... the this will just be part one, as we okay. say, because it yeah. seems like this is part of a longer conversation. I can already tell. Um, and thanks to Brian Delaney uh, for being in the engineering chair, uh, making us sound good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and well, so, Christine, will you tell us a little bit about the piece we just heard? You bet. So, um, unfortunately, that was not the the version of it I thought it was going to be. So, um, but that you, that's the basic sound bed, uh, the soundtrack that I read over, um, when I, uh, read lullaby. Uh, so lullaby is a chap book, uh, that ugly duckling put out a couple years ago and it has a CD that, um, James Marks, um, uh, created, uh, the soundtrack for, uh, just using uh, guitar and uh, some um, electronic collage work, and then I asked uh, my friend Kathleen Ivanhoff, to, who's also a writer, who um, to record some of the pieces of uh, the essay. I call it an essay, but I don't know what it is exactly, uh, or a manifesto on rhythm sometimes. Um, but so she recorded some of the uh, lines and partial lines, and then I read over it. Uh, so when I perform it, I'm reading at the same time. So it, all that blanks, you know, not blank because, of course, you hear James Marks, but like all the space um, would have been filled with my, you know, reading the the work itself. So and then sometimes it overlaps with Kathleen's voice and sometimes it breaks in uh to uh, and that's on the Ugly Duckling uh, website because the book, the chat book, sold out, and so we decided instead of putting the chat book up, that we just put the uh, audio uh, up there. And and so, how long have you been doing performances like that, Christine, where you'll have um, either collaborators there with you who are doing music, or or have something where you have these these layers of like music sound and then another voice coming in that you're. You're, yeah. you're reading with or interacting with? Well, um, 
Gosh, how I mean, it, it sort of was a very slow process of um, kind of just being frustrated with the poetry reading and, uh, you know, trying to figure out a way to renovate it a little bit and to, to make it a more engrossing, more experiential uh Phenomena for the for the listeners because you know uh, poets aren't necessarily the greatest readers and I'm certainly not the greatest reader of my own work. So and why would you like what and when you say that what what do you what do you mean by that? Is, <laughs> is it more of where you like? Uh, well, I'm just not yeah. a performer, so you know it's so you know it's like. You, the the cliche of like the poet getting up to the podium and opening the book and then just kind of like not looking up and you know reading the work in a kind of monotone voice and you know or like and also I found myself saying like preparing for what I would say between the poems because to try to ingratiate myself to the audience and uh, <laughs> um, okay sweetie. okay uh, my daughter has to, we're, we're gonna to go party. we're gonna take a short break and we'll play the next sound piece and then okay. we'll come back this is perfect you've, you've got wcbn fm ann arbor and we'll be back <laughs> sorry I no that's like okay no if i want to listen i turn to the left if i want to speak i go right to the bone speak listen listen left if I want to listen, Speak. if I want to listen, if I want to I listen, turn to the left. Turn to the left. If I want to listen, if I, I want to listen. To I turn to the left. If I want to listen, 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 to listen, listen. From now on, the noise you travel through will be my voice. Speak. Seeking you. Expect bone. bewitched frequency. Listen. Speak. Night sweat. Night sweat. Night sweats are ancient evidence of skyfuls of teeth puked and baked into cakes like razors. Night sweat. Of fireflies bearding your mouth sticky with slugs of rot gut. Dinophilus half-sleep. Of howls shoving themselves down. From now on. Of muzzled plunderers and flags galore. Plunderers. From now on. What you have counseled me to do I have not done. Raise. Sucked down into the mind's diverging line. Listen. A cold, cold amaze. Listen, left. Are you comfortable? Of muzzled plunderers and flags galore. In electromagnetic currents. Around the armpit. Rays. Recollecting the smoke of corpses. Puked and baked. Competitive weather patterns. Like razors. An ass hatch that's lost a screw. An ass hatch that's lost a screw. An ass hatch that's lost a screw. Speak, 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 You will never dig out the old voice. Speak. I'll not wake. I'll not be wailed. I'll keep vomiting through red forests. I'll sleep through your extravagance with a cigarette. I'll sleep suddenly in your alibi. I'll sleep through your France with a second wind. I'll never wake bitten. Not in the spas or unscrupulous sirens. I'll not wake growling on the landing grounds. My crunk will not uncrust. I'll not wake for young buck, not with a tornado in my lap. I'll never wake feeling along the night bloomers and cocked wet lamps, not in your blazing blazon. I'll never wake slaked in unruly rooms, not frisked in your miniatures. I'll not wake bipedal in a rabbit suit, not in a lab coat or in a black pony. 
I'll not hear my name and be brought to. I'll give away the dark or grow another. I'll not. Blazing blaze. Blaze. Blazing blaze. Blaze. I looked at all eight directions, then spread my tiger's skin on the floor. All eight directions. Before the public mind kicked in, I surveyed an inner shore on the floor. Its facets operated on me. Listen. I lost my lights and began my midnight thus. Mental feet, mental lake, little mental pines, mental mile around the muzzle. Speak! I aimed my automatic at that outlandish organ hanging in the sky like a dazed stone. Its facets, its sea expression wet the evening. Dazed stone. I captained the tempest there. The inner shore. Looking too long into the distant human pupil, I sharpened my harpoon. Oh. But my hands could not be organized. I wanted to tightrope up there on a mental binge. Outlandish organ. I reached for my quiver, and soon arrows ascended the degrees, bristling. Oh. My bird described a failure one depth below time. Listen. The moment rotated. Its color was extreme. In a heavy steel helmet, I matched that orb and tried to tackle it. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm Tia Hetzel, um, and you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor today on the program. Happy to have Christine (laughs) Hume here uh, and with her daughter, Juna. it's so, proof that right. living writers, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's like the writer's life when you're a parent. It's all about interruption <laughs> and just dealing with like little chunks of time. And <laughs> how, how do you find that it's like changed your work then, Christine? Is it that it's about chunks of time or do you, or you is, yeah? What well, it's a good question. I mean, or? it's some, definitely something I've thought a lot about. And um, I think Lullaby definitely comes out of Juna's first year uh, in the world. And I became really interested in thinking about rhythm as a kind of innate intelligence and a, as a way of like holding everything we know together and uh, and embodying everything we know and can know. And subconsciously, too. Right, exactly. Yeah, so there's this kind of like power um, there that is both personal and political and it seemed like um having a child who didn't have uh language yet it it, but it became but came with this entire uh astounding drive towards rhythm you know with the like arm flapping and the sound making and the rocking and sucking and you know lots of pre-verbal but not meaningless sounds uh, that she came with um and she I, came with. Yeah. I love that <laughs> from the factory. Yeah. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, so I mean, it just suddenly seemed like that words were really only a kind of um, allegory of these sublime powers of rhythm, and um, and the kind of basis for all thought and feeling or all thought and feeling organized, you know, enough to be called that, um, or sensations organized enough to be called thought and feeling. Um, and, uh, so I, so, so just this like fascination with rhythm as a way of communicating and, you know, what, what Emerson called the meter making argument, um, uh, fascinated me. And so, but I also, stemmed from there to thinking about language and language acquisition and uh and so not only you know does time obviously become more uh uh condensed in some ways because when you're you know you only have like a couple hours here and there to work and uh but i also realized 
uh, how much I how much time I probably wasted before that. You know, I mean, it's it's impossible to know until it actually, you know, I always said I was busy, you know, (laughs) I always felt like I was busy. And then I, then I really understood what it was like to be busy. And, um, but I, but so to get back to this idea of, uh, of how the work has changed, like right now I, I like haven't written any poetry in a, in a kind of a while, actually. Um, I mean, I shot when shot was done and there's a lot of prose in the book too. Uh, I just, became more interested in writing prose and and uh, kind of adjusting my relationship to language to embrace more um, explanation, I guess. I, I think I, I, my impulse towards ex- explaining became uh, more... And not necessarily ex- explaining in the in the, like a really discursive way, but or like in an end result. Yeah, way. exactly. Like not about like conclusions or you know <laughs> resolutions, and but just you know thinking about like a real process that's drawn out and horizontally you know complex, and um, so I, I think that's one way in which it, it changed. But I also. Um, you know, just thinking about language in a different way and the capacities of language and how we come to use language and this, you know, reconnecting with a kind of playfulness as well as um, an ability to um, lose language in some ways or lose referential meaning. Uh, so it's, I guess there's a kind of double pull towards like explanation, but also towards this other uh, way of using language that is just purely based in rhythm and, and sounds that, yeah, carry meaning. Uh, like, so you, and just to make it less abstract here, something like uh, Dadaist poetry uh, would embrace. So phonetic poetry. And something like an, a, a, an accumulation mm-hmm. to lead to the meaning of it in some ways. Or, right. Yeah. And or, I, I, well, I think this also relates that. to what I was starting to talk about before, which is my relationship to the poetry reading. So I think uh, in part I want to use sound and music to help people kind of relax and um, – metastasize the work a little bit and so it's not you know there there isn't this kind of uh rigidity to how or one receives even. yeah like uh, the poem and yeah and so you know people don't have that kind of anxiety when they listen to a song for the first time like i don't know what it means or you know <laughs> <laughs> what's going on here uh, right. Right. but i ought to yeah I exactly to. i mean and, and there's something really nice about just letting the wash of language take you where it will, but not everybody is, you know, up to that or or wants that. They want to ha- they want to have a way of orientating themselves in the poem as it's going. And when you're listening to somebody read for the first time, which is, you know, most poetry readings probably the audience is is constituted of a lot of a people who haven't been to a lot of poetry readings and b not they don't necessarily know your work very well you know so so they're getting the work for the first time in this method and you know how to give them more clues about what's going on and just even like a mood to to take in you know uh seemed more generous to me uh than just me kind of stumbling through (laughs) no that makes a lot of sense it really does and and just well the other week christine i i went to nicola's um out in Westgate, mm-hmm. and heard Tom Lynch read, and oh. I was—it was struck like how he's just 
he's not yeah he's not using like soundscapes like like uh-huh. this but the way that he spoke in between in like these different like what you had mentioned earlier about kind of wondering what was going to happen between the poems oh, right, right. almost. And, um, and I don't know how much of that he, he thinks about or what's, he just kind of goes with it. Right. But I thought now that's, that's the way to do it <laughs> where you're, you know, where, and you're interacting with people uh-huh. and the time instead of this and for the next poem right. or even, right. yeah. Right. Well, I actually, I mean, I kind of, for myself, uh, reacted against the kind of anecdotes and things like that people tend to insert between the poems just because I think I, for me, it was my way of kind of apologizing for the poem or like, uh, you know, you might, this might totally lose you, but here I'll say something funny. Here's a tidbit. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Here's something to keep you all like, you know, happy with me. Or (laughs) or what if you had to keep, felt like you had to keep saying the same thing because then that couldn't be, it would have to be each time whatever came to you. Otherwise that would feel canned. Like, yeah. yeah, Like, or it was a play. Right. Rather than. Right, and a then why not inc- poems incorporate not that into the yeah, yeah. <laughs> into the poem if that's really part of it or you know, so yeah, so there is this, you know, way of uh, I, I I like a poetry reading that that can just be that you know it's it's like you don't have to go back and forth between introducing the poems and here's the poem and you know and then saying the little joke or like what happened to you on the way you know uh, those those kinds of uh, conventions I was just for myself bored with although some people can do them really well and they're you know it's just uh, that's what I I think that more people should just make it their own instead of following this format that's yeah, been feel, handed to them. Yes. It's just like the poetry voice that some people use, you know, when they read poems where everything lilts up at the end, you know. Yeah. That's, 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 that's starting to I know. be a thing of the past, it right? Is, it, well, I hope Fingers so. Crossed, yeah. <laughs> but still crops up, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yes, it is uh, kind of antiquated at this point. <laughs> God, I mean, but now it'll probably, maybe it'll have a retro movement now oh, where right, yeah. in a year or two we'll be like, that's awesome. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. Things from the 80s came that's back, Christine. True. I don't know. You know. Wearing fluorescent and like warmer. Yeah. yeah. I mean, why not? Why not? Um, but Christine, I don't know. It's like now we've kind of um, talked our way a little bit away from it. But from the piece that we heard at the break, because um, oh, I was surprised because it, um, it wasn't your voice no, for one. Yeah. Or you used one of those like Darth Vader voice shifters <laughs> or something. But, um, no, that was Andy Reinflesh. And he's a, he teaches uh, music and composition at uh, Cleveland State. And, uh, you know, I met him at a residency in New Mexico and... Oh, was that the Taos one? Um, yes, exactly. The, okay. Yes. And uh, he, you know, he just took the manuscript and kind of focused on the poems that he liked and I, or had felt like he could inhabit. Oh, and, which manuscript, Christine? Oh, I'm sorry, for oh, Shot. For Shot. Yeah, okay. yeah. And actually, there's there's a lot in it because I think he was using the manuscript and not the book. I, I had forgotten. That's all he had was the manuscript. And... Um, so there's, I, I think there's even a poem that I entirely like took out, <laughs> of course, you know, in, in that piece. But so he, he but just he chose kind of strung, it, yeah, exactly. which is kind of lovely. Exactly. Yeah. So it exists now still, like, even though it's not uh, in the book. But so he kind of remixed a lot of the poems and uh, took lines from other poems and just kind of created this deranged uh, <laughs> speaker, which is surprising to me because like, I'm like, yeah, that does sound crazy. Like you say it like that, you know? Yeah. So he gave a kind of um, 
I th- he he does or a different kind of, punch to it, right? I exactly. Don't yeah, yeah. Uh, more of like a dramatic monologue um, aura about it, you know. So. And when you went there, was this part of the the residency where you? Well, just... that was a long time ago. So this is like no. This is like ten years later or oh, something, yeah. Right, because this yes, it's two thousand nine with shot. So this was something where you met him. Yeah, I met him a long time ago. That's then, just explain okay. the connection. Oh, like, okay. Because yeah. because I was wondering if that's something where, but I guess you meet people at these things, and right. then you can continue. Because you're someone who does not shy away from collaboration. Like, you, well, you I definitely give... love to yeah collaborate, especially with sound pieces because I don't have a lot of technical skill. Um, but I but I'm very um, enthralled with like voice and you know the ways in which sound can move us. And I mean, I, I find all that like I'm sort of late in realizing it you know i just i i feel like i just one day no me too i, I was like wow radio yeah <laughs> this is an incredible medium i you know and, and and i um and i really love i think partly it's it is a kind of nostalgic um uh pull you know um this like voice coming in the dark you know like when you're when you're a child and you know i like i often fell asleep to the sound of the radio or in the car or something like that um but i also started to think about um in terms of like you know having a child and how one um forms a self you know and there's lacan's like mirror theory um mirror stage theory but i i i was thinking that that's probably Wrong. I mean, <laughs> as arrogant that might, as that might sound, but it seems to me that the way that we kind of uh, form a self has more to do with not necessarily first looking in the mirror. I'm sure that has that that's part of it, but in the very beginning, before the eyes can really focus or see. Um, you know, our first sense to develop is our ears, and it develops like fully by five months in utero. And they've done lots of studies that say like babies or um, fetuses can identify the their mother's voice, you know, before they're born, and the voice patterns, and uh, as well as the tone. And so that's why um, people say read to your right, <laughs> exactly, and uh, and so. So there's got to be this kind of distinction between, you know, the the way that the, the uh, child um, knows the world is often through voice, right? And so there's this also this new theory of language acquisition, which says that um, it wasn't hunters coming back to tell other hunters, you know, where the where the prey uh, was located, um, but it was mothers who. Um, needed to remain in contact with their baby as they're like gathering or doing whatever they're doing. So they have to like lay the baby down, but yet talk to the baby in order to keep in contact with it. So, you know, this kind of sense of vibration entering the body. So it becomes like a third arm or something, your voice. And so that's one theory, at least, that's fairly recent about how like language came, you know, to be. a, a tool for us, and so um, thinking about uh, the ways the, in which the, yeah the sound yeah well, well so I think anyway, we're talking so, about so, the layers of sound yeah really. so so like a baby would would identify herself through 
her uh, her mother's voice, but also through her own voice. So her, the way of making a distinction between self and other oh, has right. more to do with you know a, a sonic relationship to the world rather than, than a the, visual. Yes, exactly. Because that makes I think, a lot of yeah. sense. I mean, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> another and another plus for the like the the lyrical quality or whatever is the opposite of lyric, right? That works for poems, right? Right. And, and how they come into being. Absolutely. Oh, we've got a message coming yes. here delivered. Oh yeah. Oh, this is okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Might be something from even another show. It, but I think it is actually. I, I loved how you had said. Um, well, I heard on the the piece. Um, from shot that like a tiger came into it like there was a clip of that okay. and and um i had read um in one of your interviews online christine that um the first poem you read was blake's the tiger oh right and that that and that was like the rhythm of that uh, uh-huh. and the intensity was something that captured you in 11th grade oh yes i uh, yeah. <laughs> did i say that uh well that's right that's right i mean it was definitely um an inf- uh, like a kind of breakthrough for me. I, I mean, I really honestly did not read a poem written in the 20th century before I got to college. So, you know, my, my <laughs> poetry uh, background was quite limited, but I remember distinctly, you know, it's like in English class, they'd devote like a week, you know, to poetry or, you know. Yeah, uh, if that. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, but I, I, that that poem just you know really spoke to me in terms of uh, being an adolescent and, and that kind of like pounding uh, rhythm. And then you have this like cute little tiger, uh, <laughs> cute <laughs> that, that contrasts. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, because the uh, the actual image is oh, very like yeah like yeah. benign and sweet. So it's I like that kind of tension. Um, between the visual and the sonic in the poem. So, but how did you come to poems then? Was it in college where something then really sort of crashed upon you? Or why did you decide that that words and poems were going to be your way? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, it was completely by accident, I think. Um, I was an art history major in college because I was so astounded you could even do such a thing like (laughs) I felt like I was getting away with something and I studied for a year abroad in Italy and when I was I was in Italy with um, a program that was art history majors and artists so uh, and I found myself like always just hanging out with the artists and finding I had more in common with them and and it was a really great experience for helping me realize I didn't want to be an art history major um which is, you know, ironic because it's like every art history major is like dream to go to, you know, Italy and study and there and all this. But uh, but I, I guess I realized I was just kind of hiding behind um, uh, the study. of Right. Exactly. So um, and then I had had this experience right before I left um, with where my roommate in college was um, a fiction writer and she part of the creative writing program was that you had to take a class in the other genre, you know, so she had to take a poetry class and she was terrified to take a poetry class because everybody knows <laughs> poetry Poets is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and poetry doesn't make sense. And, you know, so anyway, um, <laughs> um, so she convinced me to take it with her and I did have a kind of conversion experience. Like it just, you know, suddenly, I felt like there's this other language to express 
things I had felt but I had no access to before. And so it was an incredible experience uh, for me. So that began the path. So then when I got to Italy, I was like, oh, you know, this is um, not what I want to do. And, 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 and were you already starting to – so in that class, did you start writing, yeah, Christine, or yeah. was it more about I reading? I always – uh, considered myself a writer to a certain degree, you know. I mean, I always liked writing and language, but I like I honestly didn't even know that poetry was still being written, like <laughs> that it wasn't something of the past or something that yeah. you know, was in museums or anthologies, and that's it. So um, I had no other access to it, and uh, and and once that you know st- that ball started rolling, I really felt like uh, I had been, you know. I think I was just like wandering a little bit before that. I wasn't quite sure, but after that happened, I knew, yeah, that that I was going to be doing this anyway. So I may as well like learn about it and study it and know everything I could and, and uh, so was, as much time as I could to it. Yeah. So it was a calling of sorts. That yeah, I guess happened so. Or so for vocation or so. <laughs> and and then you went to Columbia, right, for the MFA. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, then let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll hear about your jaunt to Colorado next. (laughs) You've got Living Writers today on the program. Christine Hume. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. What are you doing? Are you uncomfortable? I move inside inside night, but am not its insides. I jerk and excise. I do not express. Outside is not made of the same dark as inside. Can you open your eyes? My looking does not bound back to me. It wanders further circles of eon in an attempt to put the moon out of my moth mind. Can you hear my lullabies? As when you descend into the ocean, you find yourself immersed in song. My whole body, made of water and umber, reverberates self-melodies. What do you hear of our talk? Blood fastens to all language at once, alive and lying, all tongues laughing one another, dowsing for roots into bodies. Why do you kick at words? To get your songs off my hands, I wade through their falls and uplifts. I dreamt the dog was trying to dig me out. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Christine Hume is here in the studio with Juna, also. Daughter Juna. Um, and maybe we should do a shout out to Jeff. Jeff yes. If he's listening. <laughs> exactly. And that was Jeff you just heard on the recording. Uh, so he helped me record that piece. Um, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> and one of the things that I, I it was funny because I was um, talking to a friend of mine who told me that he's like, oh, I just, you know, I just met somebody who has the exact same voice as Jeff. And uh, I was like, oh, how interesting. Uh, but it, but in the conversation I had with him, it made me realize, like, oh, you know, part of what I fell in love with about Jeff is his voice. I mean, I just really love his voice. And we had a long-distance relationship for um, 
uh, you know, when we when we first met, we met at a poetry reading, and then he went back to California. I went back to Michigan, and then we, you know, just talked on the phone. And so it kind of it uh, was about the voice. Yeah, then. it really. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's it definitely um, something very like ensorceling to me about his uh, voice. So I'm just glad to have it on the recording. And how strange that someone would say someone sounds like him. I know. Because then in a way, impossible. Exactly. Well, well, so going back to before the break, Christine, mm-hmm. where um, you, I was, well, I was wondering actually, because we began the program talking about Musca Domestica here with the, the, your book um, with Beacon Press. And I was wondering, was this a lot, did a lot of these poems or did any of them come from the, your time at Columbia? Or were these like much after that? And and then could you kind of walk us through that that time where you decided, well, maybe the PhD would be the way oh, to sure. go afterwards? Right. Um, well, I think there there's maybe one poem in Musca Domestica, maybe a couple. It's hard to remember. Um, but the the first poem, for sure, Helicopter Wrecked on a Hill, that was from my MFA thesis at and, Columbia. And that was in Best American Poetry it in 1997, oh, picked God. by James okay. Tate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so it's very old, yeah. Well, what did that mean to you then, What being in the that best American poetry in 97 like was that like a big breakthrough and then it, then the next one came with getting this the prize with oh the, the you know I, I I definitely had a brief you know uh feeling of ascendancy when that happened I think it was complicated though by the fact that the the poem was originally published in the Denver Quarterly and it's interesting because um that poem was rejected by 21 different magazines before the before the Denver Quarterly picked it up. I just say that because, you know. Take the fight to them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it takes a lot of pig-headedness. Uh, and, I mean, I probably revised it a couple of times, you know, but, but I don't you think knew. anything. You were sure about it. I guess you, so. Yes. I mean, I don't know if I still have that kind of determinacy. But anyway, uh, so... And I was very thankful. And it, it was so it's published by Denver Corley, but that was before I went to University of Denver. So then I, I show up at University of Denver, um, and uh, I think it was awkward for uh, Ben Ranke, the editor, to have a student in the best American poetry that you know it's he picked. So it was a little complicated, you know, that um, that timing of it exactly. Basically. It was a little complicated and. Uh, but then I also just remember feeling like totally excited about it, and I um, I was going to the DMV because in Colorado you have to have like your exhaust uh, checked, you know. And I gave the woman my ID, and she's like, "Christine Hume, aren't aren't you a poet?" And I was like, "Oh my god!" Like. <laughs> Colorado, the land of poets. Exactly. I mean, or poets, poet um, well, <laughs> appreciators. Well, it turns out that she was thinking of David Hume, the philosopher from her high school. But, you know, <laughs> but, you know I, I took it like I just and I felt, felt like incredibly silly after that. I was like, oh, why, yes, I am a poet. <laughs> you must have seen me in Best American Poetry. And she's like, no. <laughs> Anyway, it's funny. It was a small world of poetry. Wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> oh, 
Um, but but so oh so you had gone there and that was for for the PhD. Then. Right, right, right. Yeah, Christine? yeah. And I so I um and was I, that in creative writing? Was it one of the right exactly? And and <clears throat> Musca Domestica was my dissertation. Um, without the I mean, it has a preface in the dissertation format, but it's basically the dissertation. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I I met Ben actually at a poetry reading because I was living in Fort Collins, Colorado, um, just adjunct teaching after I got my MFA. And um, he, we gave a reading together. And I actually had never heard of the University of Denver or knew about their program. But I, he was so kind and generous and um, just a really great person that I decided to apply. And, you know, that's that's how I ended up there. Um, but it was a really good decision in a lot of ways. I met some amazing people and um, just that kind of support, I think, was really necessary at that time in my life. So, and and it seemed like it was more of than maybe a creative PhD program. If this was what you were making as your your well, your dissertation became this this book, rather than maybe pursuing theory or what, right. whatever. I don't. Yeah. Well, the way okay, so the way that that program works, and there are, you know there are about five or six programs like this in the country where. You can do a creative. So the only difference in terms of um, your experience there is that you can do a creative dissertation. So you don't have to do a scholarly dissertation, which was good for me because I don't think of myself as a scholar. You know, um, at the same time, I wanted to fill in some holes I had in my reading and my education, and just having that kind of sustained time to read and write was, you know, you can't beat that. So it was a that was a great and and the people that were in the program at the time were just incredible, uh, really smart, really good writers, um, and so the community was incredible, and. Um, and yeah, so that so that that's what came out of that experience. And I, I was uh, right after I took my comprehensive exams, I uh, was in Provincetown for the Fine Arts Work Center residency for seven months, and the um, the manuscript was accepted. I think like my second or third month there. So that was that also felt really good. So I mean, the timing of that was also for me really great because I had just spent a lot of time studying for these comprehensive exams and I was just felt really uh, inundated with uh, that part of the program, you know, and, and academia. And uh, so it was nice just to totally get away and do this, you know, reconnect with poetry and my own practice. And Yeah, because um, I wonder if you hadn't done that with right. something, what would have happened if you had been... Kind of because some, sometimes if, we keep yeah. going. Yeah, <laughs> keep going. Exactly, yeah. So that was a... a uh, so and have there been it seems like you've had other residencies too have they been also at critical times like the one let's see maybe um what what other ones mcdowell um perhaps even well i guess teaching wouldn't be a residency well it is of sorts in st petersburg like uh, these different well, um, that, yeah that was uh it that in st petersburg um uh, we I went with Juna actually and Jeff uh, and Jeff and I well I taught and Jeff gave a workshop and we both read there so for the summer li- literary program seminar it was really amazing I mean um, had I known what it was going to be like to have a thirteen month old there <laughs> I might not have gone but <laughs> but you know in 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 general it was a it was a great experience um, it 
like St. Petersburg with a young baby isn't necessarily, especially when you don't know Russian, isn't necessarily like. <laughs> yeah, that might be tricky. Recommendable. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Unless you have a really good translator who's with you all the time. Right, so, right. You know, yeah. You're attache. <laughs> <laughs> well, just, I mean, there were, I mean, there's Giardia in the water. So, you know, there's always that like threat of uh, Giardia. And uh, we basically didn't take a bath for like two weeks. And then, um, you know, there were these packs of wild dogs roaming the street. There were, I mean, there's like, there was no place to play. Uh, it almost sounds know. like Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> if you don't have your water tablets. Right, right exactly. <laughs> a different rivers. kind of, well, it was like yeah. basically in the equivalent, although of being like in Times Square, you know, because it was very like intensely urban and, um, and uh, there was... Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm like... Juna is watching um, Mary Poppins, so that's we've got that going on on the side here. That's like our our side. Well, you know what? I wanted to quickly ask you oh, yeah, about please. your your poems in translation because I think your your book coming out from Lux Books oh, um, right. uh, in Berlin would be a bilingual right. uh, book with your poems, and and then I'm assuming in German, or, right? Or exactly yeah. right. Although I mean, I that I I haven't really heard from them in a while, but. Um, there are a couple people uh, doing the translations, and um, it's been really a, a pleasure working with them. It's they, they send like these long lists of very funny questions, you know, like <laughs> what do you mean by you know this word? And do you can mean you this, give this, us this? can you give us an I example? Can't can you remember think of now? One? Uh, because it's been it's probably been like a year and a half since you know I've heard anything. So um, I should actually yeah we got we got to get them on the horn. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Follow through. Mama, is it still the morning? No, it's the afternoon now. I know it's timeless down in a basement, though. <laughs> the radio station is sort of a timeless place of magic. <laughs> Juna's looking at me sideways. I'm not convincing her. I don't think. Uh. <laughs> so, so have you? But you're working with people who are. Is it? Is it? Is it ever? Are you ever shocked or surprised with something that they're coming up with? Because you said the questions are sometimes funny. Well, I don't do know German, see... unfortunately, so I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's. I feel like it's probably better that way. You just have to trust it. Yeah, exactly. What, what they make with it, right? Exactly. Have you done translations like with of because like Slovenian or or any or you know? Unfortunately, I don't know any other language well enough to do that, um, and it's one of the. Things I regret, um, even though I've moved around quite a bit, I uh, and I and I lived in Germany when I was, uh, you know, four, five, and six. I I knew it then, but it's totally gone now. Um, oh, I wonder though. Maybe you have the those believe foundations. Me, in there, I've been or... back like many times, and uh, I I always dream that it's all going to come flooding back. I mean, you know, I would know it like a five year old, but still. Um, but I will say this, it was quite easy to learn old English. Um, so I think that's probably because of some of the structures are probably there. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's not easy for me to learn other languages, but that would seem like incredibly easy. Oh, uh, it's a completely other language. I did <laughs> translate Beowulf. I mean, that's but that was part of my coursework for my PhD. So. <laughs> ah, okay. So a connection with the old English in that way. Yeah. That was like your, why, so why did you, did you have to translate something for the PhD and you chose Beowulf or was that just something that you wanted to do so you built it in 
Again? Uh, well, we have, um, you know, like most PhD programs, there, were, there was a uh, requirement to have uh, to know two other languages besides English. And so um, that was one of my languages. So the, they let you do Old English as one of your languages if you're like me and like scrambling <laughs> for another. And, and I, the French was the other one. But I could just, you know, basically do some cramming for that. <laughs> and now you have the language of radio too, Christine. Oh. That's under your because. So you have a program where you talk with poets. Um, well, I don't poetry actually poetry talk with poets, but yes, yeah. it is a program poetry radio. But I basically just um, curate sound files. You know, so I'm playing. I, I sometimes have a theme, um, but I'm playing. Uh, sound poems and sound art and some audio stories and whatever I find on the web or from my my own collection. And making a collage of them? Well, or just, just like introducing them like songs, you know, so they it just is that, basically. That. And, and I have um, had people on the show before, but it's more rare that I do a kind of interview situation like this. Um, it's mostly just because I, I feel like there's so many incredible audio files. So it's a great way for me to kind of work through Ubu sound or um, pen sounds or, you know, some of these archives. Uh, but it's also a way to like organize them and think think about them in these um, other kind of patterns and other formats. Um, Which is something you're doing naturally always, it seems like. So oh, it seems only natural that you would look at them in these pieces and... and well, I also teach sound poetry, so I often will have my students listen to the show as a way of doing their homework because I'm playing their homework, basically, because they have a lot of listening homework. It's like uh, a, it's a, yeah, a, a textbook for your ear. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, well, that's wonderful. Well, I will have to listen oh, yeah. uh, to those and, um, and have some, some learning that away as well. <laughs> well, I'm a total amateur on the radio. So, I mean, I, I had no train, zero training. <laughs> well, seem true pros today, the, yeah. the, the Hume family here at the station. Um, thanks so much for being here, Christine. Oh, and, thank you. And Juna too. And, and is there, are there any things coming up, um, in the community for people to take it. Like, will you be reading at EMU at any time soon or in the well, bathhouse? I did already. And, um, yes. Yeah. In, in the fall, 